listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Today we're jumping in... um, two verses that we've used to kind of frame this series on prayer. The first being John 15, 7. John 15, 7. Thank you to everybody that's putting these in the uh, comments because I can't always stop. There's so many questions that people are like, what was that last verse? What was that last point? If, if the Facebook uh, family and the YouTube family will both do that for me, people will be able to just read it in the comments. John 15, 7 and may I please have some sort of Zevia or something that will refresh this Egg McMuffin palate. Um, John 15, 7, the Bible says, and it's Jesus speaking, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask for whatever you will and it shall be done. It's good to see Kevin Dalton. I love you and Tammy. We're so happy you're at Miracle Word Church. We got Leslie Joy, who's making plans to be at Miracle Word Church. We got people coming from all over the place. Answers to prayer. Absolutely. Answers to prayer. Um, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So there's the key. You see that. If my words abide in you. Now, if you're a Christian, you're abiding in him. But he said, not just if you abide in me, if my words abide in you. You can ask what you will and it shall be done. Thank you. The hand handing the mug. Good morning, Jessica Full, Ben Full. Love you guys. If you're not praying the word of God, then you're missing how prayer functions. God is watching over his word to perform it. Jeremiah 1.12. God is watching over his word to perform it. And so when we pray, we pray the word of God. We pray the word of God. Uh, It's very important that your prayers are backed up by God's word. You don't ever want to pray something that God never promised that's not in his covenant or that contradicts what his word says. You don't want to pray that either. I was one time at a meeting and my wife was with me. We were sitting. I was not preaching that session, but I was sitting on the front row listening to this other guy that I didn't even really know. And he was telling a story. And then in the story, he told about a prayer that he prayed that I thought was the most ridiculous thing. It was one of the stupidest things I've ever heard probably in my life as a Christian. He said, I was in the hospital and the person that was there that I was seeing was battling this extreme case of cancer. And he said, I felt such a a burden as I was praying for them. And then he said this, he said, um, I began to pray and ask God, oh Lord, take the cancer out of them and put it into me. Like I'll take their burden for them. I thought, what a stupid, stupid prayer. It's stupid on multiple levels. It's stupid on multiple levels. The first level on which it's very stupid is that you'll not find an example of that anywhere in the Bible to pray that somebody would be delivered of their sickness by having it come on you instead of coming on them. That's absolutely stupid. 
And then the second level, on which it's very stupid, is that if you've got enough faith, I mean, if that did happen, what you just said, that would be a very supernatural thing, that you could uh, have someone's sickness transferred off their body and into yours. That's supernatural. That's a miracle. So if you've got enough faith to ask for that, then why would you not just ask God to heal the sickness and take it away totally? Why does it have to go on someone else? Dumb. But again, that's not a prayer that Jesus can answer. How could Jesus answer that prayer? It's not in his word. There's no apostolic instruction. Jesus didn't ever pray like that. The apostles didn't. The early church didn't. I mean, in, in all honesty, that's one of the dumbest things ever. So uh, I look at these things and think people are just praying random things that are not backed up by scripture and are absolutely foolish. And, and they're not, because they're not in the word, God can't answer them. He, he's watching over his word to perform it. He's watching over his word to perform it. Now, the, the second scripture that we've been quoting to you during this series is James 5, 16. James 5, 16, where the Bible says that the prayer of a righteous man or woman makes much power available, has much power as it's working. So understand your prayer is powerful. Prayer's not arbitrary. It's not random. Your prayer carries power and makes power available. I want to, I want to say that one more time because I got to add something to it. Your prayer, when I say your prayer makes power available, what does that mean practically? Your prayer makes power available. It's because we as Christians are filled with God's power. It's resurrection power. It's the Holy Ghost who dwells in you. You are his temple. You are the home in which he lives. The Bible says, and Paul reminded the Corinthian church, do you not know? that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, right? So you are filled with the greatest power. The Bible says we have this treasure inside of earthen vessels. There's a treasure in us. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. We're united with Christ in baptism. We're one with God in that covenant. That power's in us. Unlimited, in fact, would you please put it in the comments this way? Unlimited power fills my body. Unlimited power fills my body. No question about that. No question about that. So it's resurrection power. It's the Holy Ghost. But just because people are filled with the Holy Ghost does not mean they're releasing that power in everyday life or releasing it to others. And Jesus explained to his disciples how to release that supernatural power. And at that time, he was only explaining it to them. They weren't even filled with the Holy Ghost yet. They were just operating under his authority. He'd given them authority to cast out devils and to heal the sick. And in Mark chapter nine, they failed to cast out a demon. And Jesus did it easily. And they asked him later, how come we couldn't cast this demon out? And he said to them in Mark 9, 29, this kind of demon, so that means there's different kinds of demons. This kind of demon does not come out except through prayer 
One translation, except by prayer. So what Jesus was saying to them was that you're not sufficiently praying in order to release the kind of power necessary to cast out that kind of demon. If so, what, let me tell you what he didn't say to them was I'm the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. That's why I was able to cast the demon out. I'm the son of God. You're not the son of God. That's why I could cast the demon out. No, he didn't make a distinction between, uh, his, uh, Messiahship and their human ability. No, he, he actually rebuked them. The reason he rebuked them, you faithless generation, how long do I have to be with you? Um, The reason he rebuked them is because they should have been able to cast the demon out. Why couldn't they? They had not been praying like they should have been praying. Gina says, was it by fasting and prayer? Um, Later manuscripts add the phrase and fasting. This kind of demon comes out by nothing except by prayer and fasting. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the Bible we have, Gina, don't say and fasting. They just, that's why modern translations like the ESV and the NLT and others, NET, they'll say this kind of demon does not come out by anything except by prayer. It's not that uh, versions are leaving it out, Gina. It's that when, back when the King James Bible was created, they only had a very small number of Greek manuscripts to work with when they translated the Bible. And some of it was done in Latin. Um, And so when we discovered earlier and better manuscripts along the way, we realized that down through the ages, some things um, were added, not deviously, but uh, as it's an an interesting thing. I like to explain this because this is a question I get a lot. It's not some devious thing where some people were changing the Bible. It's that holy scribes, men who loved the word of God, men who loved Jesus, would receive these manuscripts and sometimes they'd see writing in the margin on the side. The problem was sometimes if a scribe missed a line and started on the next line, he'd write what he missed in the side. Other times commentary was added in the, in the margin on the side. So this is the expansion of the word of God. Uh, it's not devious in any way. It's just that scribes knew the word of God was so holy that if they saw something that maybe the scribe who uh, had done this manuscript that they didn't know who he was, they said, oh, maybe he missed something and this was part of the text. I don't want to leave it out. Just to be careful that they weren't leaving any portion of the Bible out, they would add it into the text as scripture. Um, And so we saw that and fasting was in later years, later centuries, just added into the text. And everything that I've read about this says that the reason it may have been added is because scribes understood uh, the early church's emphasis on fasting. They fasted two days every single week, every week. That's on record. We have that from extra biblical apostolic writings called the Didache. It's in my book, Complete Guide to Biblical Fasting. Every single week, the early church fasted for two days, every week. And so the scribes knew the church's uh, penchant for fasting and they added it in. It's called, there's an actual term for this um, in Bible transmission and translation. It's called inflated piety. It means that they did not ever want to be, have a lack of piety. They didn't want, we want to, be too, uh, leave out how pious they were. Well, that, that doesn't matter. We're just going to leave that out. No, they, they want to be so careful. We're not missing any of God's word. They would just add it right in. 
Um, and so it's actually how Matthew chapter 17's verse that matches this uh, was in the Bible as well. Because if you look back into the original manuscripts, they're not, that, that verse in Matthew 17, I believe it's verse 21 that matches this, is not in the Matthew manuscripts. But scribes who had the Bible said, you know, we know in this story that Jesus said this to his disciples. They knew it from the Gospel of Mark. They said, we know that he said this, and so it goes here in the story, so we're just going to insert it. That's why um, when you go, yeah, Matthew 17, 21, when you go to later translations like the ESV, the NLT, and others, that verse will be missing. But just so that nobody freaks out that, you know, people, people are taking stuff out of the Bible. They'll even, ex, they'll even remove that verse number. So you'll see like in, in the ESV, it'll go from Matthew 17, 20 to Matthew 17, 22. You, you'll see the verse numbers not even in there. And then usually a footnote at the bottom of your Bible will say um, some manuscripts add the verse this kind comes not out but by prayer and fasting. And so that's why those are there. By the way, uh, just so you understand how powerful the Word of God is, um, in all of the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, over 6,000 at this point, fragments and manuscripts, there are only eight, think about this, eight verses in question in the entire New Testament that are uh, in question from the manuscripts that we have only eight and none of them affect any kind of the doctrines of the Christian church that we have or follow. None of them are anything that changes what we believe or none of our doctrines hinge on those eight verses that are in question. After 2000 years, after 6,000 manuscripts that archeologists have discovered, all of the Bible, God has truly preserved his word that after all of that, only eight verses of the whole New Testament are in question by scholars. And uh, it's a mind-blowing study. It's one of my favorite studies uh, in the world to do uh, because the Word of God's so powerful. It's been preserved. It's so amazing. And as I talk about basing our prayer on the Word of God, you can be sure that God preserved His Word. Did you know that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the Qumran Caves, in the 1940s, you know, people were pretty sure at that point that, oh, the Bible's been changed through the ages. You know, there's been a lot of people that have edited things in the Bible. We don't have the Bible the early church had and all that nonsense. When they found the scrolls inside the pottery of the Qumran caves, they found a full manuscript of the book of Isaiah, a full Manuscript, And when they compared it to what we have modern day, it was 99.9% exact match to what we have today. And the only things that were discrepancies or changes were punctuation and spelling. Imagine that. That's something, who knows how many thousands of years old those manuscripts were. People were sure, they were sure that the Bible's been changed. The Bible's not been changed. Um... Yaniel said, what do you think about that I've been led to ignore them? I was going to ask you, but didn't want to distract. I wasn't sure I could focus on, on 66 books first. Um, ignore, make, give me more context. Ignore what? Um, ignore the verses that, that are in question. Julie said, I've been actually seen it in 2001, went to Israel. 
You saw Qumran. You saw the caves where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Absolutely amazing. If you go to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., it's amazing to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls that they have there, um, as, along with all the other Bibles. I could spend a month just going through that one floor in the Museum of the Bible and looking at all the different Bibles and manuscripts and Dead Sea Scrolls and all the things they have. Uh, the transmission and translation of Scripture is one of my favorite subjects, if not my favorite subject. Um, Yaniel said, meaning don't focus on Dead Sea Scrolls or books of Enoch until I've studied the Old and New Testament. Well, obviously, yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained books from the um, canonical Bible, the 66 books you're mentioning, um, but it also contained extra biblical writings as well. The book of Enoch is filled with heresies, so I, I wouldn't uh, in any way, I mean, you could read it as a historical book and just read it if you want to read it, but I, I would never put the book of Enoch anywhere close uh, to anything in the Bible. It's not inspired and it's full of heresies, um, along with other New Testament extra biblical gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. We call them apocryphal books, or some are called pseudepigraphal books. They're not inspired by God. Um, and so uh, it, it's. It's no different than just reading a, a book that you bought at Barnes and Noble. It's not God's word. Um, it may give you some historical uh, value. It may not. But um, just, I mean, the book of Enoch, that, that went around, you know, about a decade ago. Everybody was freaking out. You need to read the book of Enoch. If you haven't read the book of Enoch, you don't understand spiritual warfare and angels. It's like, no, it's not inspired by God. And uh, it's filled with heresies. It teaches that God actually delegated the forgiveness of sins to angels, which is heretical. That's absolutely ridiculous and stupid. Um, so I'm, I don't encourage people, um, and what you said is right. I mean, why would you go read books, uh, apocryphal books of the Bible, pseudepigraphal books of the Bible that are not inspired by God before reading the words that are inspired by God? And so they, and Kathleen asks, how did they determine which books were inspired by God? They actually didn't determine it, Kathleen. They actually discovered it, or what we would say, they recognized it. Because nobody can tell, nobody can just say this book is God's word and this was not. They had to recognize it by a form of criteria. Uh, and so the Old Testament books have been set in stone for thousands of years. And, and the Jews have kept them for thousands of years. So the, the Old Testament is not as much of a problem for people that ask that question as the New Testament. But the New Testament, um, how did they recognize which New Testament books were from God, were inspired by God? Well, number one, those books had to be written by people who were eyewitnesses of what took place in that time. They were eyewitnesses of, play, of, of what took place in that time. Uh, I keep this in the flyleaf of my Bible. Excellent quote by um, Vaudi Bauckham, or Vodi Bauckham, however you want to pronounce his name. He said, I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. And so 
Uh, Andrew asks, do you have a teaching on how the Bible was made? I know you're talking about it now, but it's amazing to see the Bible so perfect as it is now, but don't fully understand the history of how it's made. Um, there's two books that I would recommend to you, um, Andrew, and I think they'd be excellent additions to your library. The first one is called How We Got Our Bible. That's an excellent book. How We Got Our Bible. Um, Tiff, I don't know if you can pull that up on Amazon and throw that link in, but How We Got Our Bibles, number one. The other one, Andrew, that I would recommend to you, and they're both great reads. The other one is called um, From God to Us. From God to Us. The first one, How We Got Our Bible, is written by, that's not the one. Nope. If you go to Amazon, I can tell you because I'll look at the cover and tell you that is the one. Um, but if you write those two things down, how we got our Bible, I thought, I thought it was by Dr. Lightfoot. Who wrote that one? Oh, there's the, there's the From God to Us by Dr. Norm Geisler. So, so put that link in, that, that's one of them. That book is absolutely amazing. From God to Us by Dr. Norman Geisler. This is a wonderful, wonderful teaching. Uh, and pretty, it's pretty uh, extensive as well, but it's, not, it's, it's on a, a layperson level. It's not on like a textbook level. You know what I mean? It's not like you're feeling like you're going to college. And then How We Got Our Bible is the, is the other one if you, or you're searching it. Um, type in Lightfoot and see if it comes up. That's the one. Yep, that's the one. Dr. Neil R. Lightfoot, that's the book. So How We Got Our Bible by um, Dr. Lightfoot is another, and she's gonna put that link in the, um, in the comments as well. Those two books are two of my favorite books on this subject. Um, they explain, and so they also explain, Andrew and those that are listening, they also explain the difference between uh, how did we, as I was explaining, how do we recognize books that are inspired by God uh, the books that are in the canon, and then how do we recognize books that are um, apocryphal? They are, they're not inspired by God or pseudepigraphal. And it's a very interesting study. But again, eyewitnesses. Sometimes these books that were written were discovered hundreds of years after the person whose name is on it died. And so they find it would be impossible for the person that they say wrote this or whose name is on this actually wrote it because they can tell it was written hundreds of years after they died. So um, it's, it's not as hard as people think because obviously these eyewitnesses who wrote these things, it did not benefit them to write these things. They were tortured for it. They were killed for it. They were persecuted for it. It's not like it, they got mansions because they wrote a book of the Bible. They were cut in half. They were fed to wild animals. They were uh, crucified. They, they were beheaded. So uh, the persecution is proof that they weren't doing these things for personal gain. And you think, well, oh, they just wanted to start a new religion. There was no benefit for 300 years to starting a new religion until the peace of the church under Constantine. People were being killed in mass and in very brutal ways because they were Christians all over the place. So there was no benefit of starting a new religion. You know, there's people that argue, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's something Paul made up later in his letters. No, Jesus did claim to be God multiple times. It's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You know, he claimed it multiple times. Uh, he read 
a, a passage in Luke, Luke chapter four, about the Messiah, 418, in the temple. And then he put it down and said, today, the scripture I just read was fulfilled in your ears, saying, I'm the one that's about. And they freaked out. They freaked out. And he many times claimed to be not just the son of God, but on the level of God himself. He said, for, for what good work are you stoning me? They said, not for any of your good works, but because you claim to be God. So they obviously knew that he was claiming to be God. The deity of Christ is not something that was made up by Paul the apostle uh, after Jesus had died and gone to heaven. Uh, this is something Jesus claimed. This is something that the Old Testament prophesied. If you just simply study the messianic prophecies, mind-blowing, Jesus fulfilled all of them perfectly, which is not even possible. Statisticians have proven that it's not even possible that one man could fulfill the over 200 prophecies that were given about the Messiah. There's, there's, no, there's no way. They said it's very impossible. In fact, the probability that it could happen all to one man was, um, I believe, one in 10 to the 27th power, something like that. It was like 100 quadrillion, something like that. And the way that they explained it was, here's the chances. If you filled the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars and marked one of those silver dollars with a red X, you could start a person at any city or town in Texas, blindfold them and say, start wading through these silver dollars that fill Texas, and when you feel lucky, bend down and pick one up, and that has to be the one that has the red X on it. Those are the chances Jesus could fulfill, not all of the Messianic prophecies, but just eight, eight of them in his lifetime. And he fulfilled all of them and the ramifications. It's absolutely impossible, it's miraculous, that's, that's why it's so amazing. That's why prophecy and, and messianic prophecy is so amazing. So um, I know this is kind of derailed into a teaching on <laughs> biblical canonicity and, and the transmission and translation of scripture, but it, it is absolutely amazing that, and that's why I, I'm so focused on when we pray that we have to focus our prayers and base them on God's word. It's such a supernatural thing. It came out of God's mouth. It is inspired. In fact, the writers were inspired, but this is expired. It means God breathed it out. He expired it. And then the writers received the breath of God and they were inspired because of what God expired, you see. And so it's, it's very powerful. In fact, the Bible tells us that very thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God. Did you know that? I've taught this many times. That's the only place in the whole New Testament that that Greek word is used. And the Greek word there is theonustos. Theonustos. God breathed is what it is, what that word, two Greek words pushed together, theos, which is God, and neustos, which is, or, or pneuma, that is spirit or breath. God breathed. Theonustos. One time in the whole New Testament, that that's used, and it's to explain how God's word came about. All scripture is theonostos, breathed out by God. So the writers were inspired, but God's word is expired. He breathed it out. And 
if you go to second, uh, second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says that there are no prophecies of scripture, none, not one. Let me read it to you. Second Peter one verses 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That, that means, well, let me go on further for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So nobody just, like Paul never just sat down and decided, I think I'll write the second letter to the Corinthians today. No, he was inspired by God to write his letters to the churches, inspired by God. He didn't just decide to write Colossians. No, the Holy Spirit inspired him. And if you think this is something that was decided later on in life, you can find by reading our Bible that these apostles even knew, they even knew they were writing scripture. Peter knew Paul was writing scripture. His letters were scripture. That's why Peter said uh, the letters that Paul sends are sometimes hard to understand as are the other scriptures. So he's, what, what Peter is saying is that he understood that Paul's letters were on par with the other scriptures. So they knew in the time they were writing these things, this is from God. Paul believed it so much so that he said to the Galatians, this, this thing that I'm preaching to you is so from God that if anybody comes and writes to you or tells you anything different than what I'm saying, even if it's me or us, our apostles, or an angel, let those people be cursed. That's how much Paul knew and believed that the things he was writing, the things that he was saying to the churches were from God. He said, even if an angel tells you something different, even if we come back and change our minds and come back with our other apostles and tell you something different, let us be cursed and let the angels be accursed. That's how much they knew that what they were writing was scripture from God. It's not somebody decided years later, well, these were good men that were just writing letters. And then later on, people that were super spiritual decided to make their letters into like God's word. And you know, that's not true. That's not true. And so the Bible, this, this study is one of the most powerful studies that you could ever, that's why I, why do you think I started Bible study made simple? Why do you think I want you to be a part of it? <laughs> why do you think we made it so cheap? $15 a month. It, the reason is because this is one of the most powerful things you could ever understand as a Christian. If you can't rightly divide the word of God, if you can't grasp the word of God, you're sunk already. Your ship is sunk already. Because this is the thing that the devil uses to destroy Christians, is to deceive their minds into believing things that the word of God never said. And then what happens? Then we actually begin to speak things that the Bible never said. And then we begin, able to, we begin to live things that the Bible never said. That's why uh, if you study the book of Acts, you'll find a group of Christians called the Bereans. They were the Bereans. And they had actual apostles standing in front of them daily, teaching them the word of God. And do you know what's powerful? The Bible says they didn't just te take the apostles teaching at face value. The Bible says that the Bereans, after they had been taught what the apostles were saying, they would refer back to the scriptures to ensure 
these things were so. Think about that. They've got actual apostles standing in front of them and they don't care. Apostles that have been approved by signs and wonders and miracles and they don't care. They say, yeah, I know you're an apostle. I know you've got signs, wonders and miracles, but I'm going to take your teaching and I'm going to refer back to God's word and ensure that these things are so. That's why even on this broadcast, I encourage every one of you, never just take my teachings at face value. You refer back to the word of God and you ensure that these things that I'm saying are so. And if you can't find it in God's word, why do you think I use so much scripture when I teach you? Why do you think I use so much Bible? I back it up like a lawyer who's preparing for a court case, evidence after evidence after evidence. Why do you think that I use so much scripture when I'm teaching? It's because I don't care to teach anything that's simply my opinion. If God's word doesn't say it, then let's throw it out. Why do you, why do you think that when I wrote the book, Complete Guide to Biblical Fasting, obviously you don't want to write things that would make people mad at you, right? You don't want, I don't want to just write a book that immediately trashes people's ideas and makes them angry that I ever said or wrote what I wrote. But when I was teaching on fasting, I had to write a, a chapter on is the Daniel fast biblical? It's the most popular fast in the body of Christ, the Daniel fast. So I had to address it in the book that's a complete guide to biblical fasting. And we had to go to, we had to do what the Bereans did, go to the word of God and compare it. Do we see the Daniel fast in God's word? Do we even see Daniel doing the Daniel fast? And the answer to that is no because he never claimed to be fasting when that passage they use is being used. But in the previous chapter, he was fasting and didn't eat anything. So there is a true fast, and then there's something made up by people. We have to compare back to the Word of God. I, didn't just, I don't want to write things just to be controversial or have people be mad that I wrote it. But we have to compare to the Word of God. If God's Word doesn't teach it, let's throw it out. And not live that way and not think that way and not speak that way. And conduct. if God's word doesn't teach it, it's, it's worthless. That's why I use so much scripture. And that's why I want you, you take these things into your spirit. And then you go back to your Bible and do what? Ensure these things are so. Amen. I'm not the only one that has the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit and can hear his voice. Let me tell you, even without searching the scripture, sometimes I've heard things taught that I knew were false doctrine, but I couldn't put my finger on finger on why, but the Holy spirit checked me on the inside. And I just had this like, ah, that's not right. That's not right. I couldn't put my finger at that moment on why it's not right, but I just had this feeling. And so what does that cause me to do? That, that convicting feeling has me jump back into the Bible and search those things out and do a full study of what's being taught. That's why, I'm, that's why I, I produced Bible Study Made Simple. <laughs> it's not because $15 a month does. It's because I, I need you to have a solid understanding of God's word so that in these last days, when many depart from the truth, right? When many have itching ears for teachers that'll just teach them what their ears want to hear, doctrines of demons, that you'll not ever fall prey to that type of teaching. You'll never fall prey to that wickedness that's being spread in the world when there's a drought of the word of God, when people won't preach the full gospel of Christ anymore, 
when many are backing away from the Holy Spirit, backing away from supernatural manifestation and preaching the full counsel of God's word, and rather teaching that Christians can be demon-possessed and other nonsense like that. How do you avoid that nonsense? We avoid it by knowing what the Word of God says and how to properly interpret the Word of God. Two skills, let me just say this to you, two skills that every Christian has to hone in their life. The two most important skills that you can have as a Christian. You know what they are? Number one, the most important skill you can have as a Christian is understanding how to properly interpret the Word of God. That's number one. Put it in the comments. This teaching has gone another direction altogether. The number one skill every Christian can and should have is how to properly interpret the Word of God. The fancy word for this is hermeneutics. That's the class you teach or you, you take when you go to seminary or Bible school or whatever. Hermeneutics. That's what Bible study made simple is. It's how to properly interpret the Bible and study the Bible. That's why we opened this course and made it so cheap and accessible. It's because it's the most important skill any Christian can have. More important than anything else, how to properly interpret the word of God. You say, really, that's the most important skill? How can that be the most important skill? The reason is because everything we know about God, even everything we can receive from God, cannot be received if it's not found and understood from God's word. Let me just say this. This is all of God that we can know right now. I know that freaks people out. Well, the Holy Spirit reveals things to me about God that, you know, the, the word, no, he cannot. The Holy Spirit can't give you more about God than can be found in the written word. I know that freaks Pentecostals and Charismatics out to hear stuff like that. The Holy Spirit cannot give you more information about God than can be found in his written word. You say, how come? Because what would we compare it to to know it's the Holy Spirit? How could we verify it? How could we verify the data? If the Holy Spirit told us some truth about God that can't be found in the written word, how would we ever verify that that's the truth? Everything has to be judged against this document, this collection of documents, everything. Did you know we wouldn't even know to be filled with the Holy Ghost in baptism if we didn't read about it in the Bible? So the most important skill any believer can have, your entire inheritance as the child of God is found in the word of God. That's why Paul said in Acts 20, 32, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those that are sanctified. There's an inheritance that belongs to those that are sanctified that you can't get if you don't get it from the word of God. This shows you what the inheritance is. This is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. You see, so the most important skill you could develop is the skill to properly interpret and understand the word of God. You'll not be taken in by false teaching. You'll not be derailed. None of those things. Hermeneutics is the fancy word. It's the study and interpretation, proper interpretation of the scripture. And that's why we launched Bible study made simple. You got to be a part of it, man. 
There's no reason you buy, you go buy, and, and, and listen, that's why we made it cheap. People are willing to go buy two lattes at least a month. Most people buy eight, 10, 12 lattes a month. Two, three lattes would pay. And the reason I say that is not because it has nothing, our ministry doesn't need money. It's not because of that. It's because I made it cheap on purpose because I want people to get involved. But the reason I put a cost to it is because anything you give people for free, they don't value. I'm going to say that one more time for those that are watching. Anything you give people for free, they don't value it. There has to be a cost associated with something for people to value it. That's why the Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart follows your treasure. If I'm not, in, if I'm not invested in something, I don't care about it. That's why you can, you get little trinkets for free. You can even buy, if, if you've not truly invested, if you've got a pair of sunglasses for $1.99, you're not going to care if you break them. You're not going to care if you lose them. You're not going to care. You don't care if they're stolen. But if you paid $500 for a pair of sunglasses, let me tell you something. You're going to be ticked off if they're lost, broken, or stolen. Why? Because you've invested in those sunglasses. Your treasure's there, so your heart responds differently. Anything that's free, people don't value it. So there has to be a cost associated with it, or people don't put value on it. And then they're not motivated to do it. And so understand this. We give you so much teaching for free through this channel, through our app and everything else. But this is the most important skill anybody as a Christian could ever get. The second one is knowing and understanding how to be led by the Holy Spirit. There is no question that one of the biggest things that Christians today lack is the ability to be led by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. When the Spirit of truth is come, he will lead and guide you into all truth. Good news, he's already come. And he's leading and guiding his children. To understand how to be properly led by the Spirit, so you're not making a bad move after bad move. You're not going failure after failure, crisis after crisis. Because he doesn't lead you into crisis. He doesn't lead you into failure. He leads you into victory. You go from grace to grace, from victory to victory, from all of this. What the Bible says, you, the path of the righteous is a shining light goes brighter and brighter till the full light of day. Proverbs 4, 18. The reason is God doesn't lead you into destruction. Isaiah 48, 17. I'm the Lord, your God who teaches you to profit and leads you in the way you should go. He always leads you into what's greater. So if you can be led by the spirit and you can rightly divide the word of God, properly interpret scripture, you're on a whole other level of victory than those who don't know how to do those two things. And that's why we take the time to talk about it. And prayer is one of the ways that we can um, develop that relationship with the Holy Spirit, develop our relationship with God and our life with God. And I know this took a whole nother turn, but I'll give you the two just so you have them for your list. Uh, number, the number eight uh, type of prayer that moves God's hand is the prayer of agreement. Number eight is the prayer of agreement found in Matthew chapter 18. There's people that think this passage is just about church government. It's not about church government only. Matthew chapter 18, the Bible says, um, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now look at verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask. So even though this portion of, of the gospels here might have addressed church government, if your brother sins against you, how you should respond, go to him. If he doesn't receive you, go back with witnesses. If he still won't receive you, go back and bring it to the church. And if they won't respond, then have nothing more to do with that person. And that, you know, that part may be about how to function in church government. But then Jesus shifts his verbiage and says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, not just about forgiveness or church government or church discipline, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father, which is in heaven for where two or three are gathered together. My, my name, I'm there among them. And I want you to understand this. It's not just about, it's not only about church discipline and church government. If two of you agree on anything, anything they ask, it shall be done for them. It's important to know when you're joining yourself up with somebody who's going to agree with you in faith and agree with you in prayer. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? How can two walk together unless they be agreed? So why would I ever ask somebody to join me in faith, join me in prayer to pray for something that that Christian doesn't even believe is available to Christians today? If I need a miracle of healing, why would I try to join my faith with somebody who, who doesn't believe healings for today? I'm not going to do that. So when you pray the prayer of agreement, you need to pray and agree with people who have, who are in agreement with you. <laughs> They're truly in agreement. They believe what you believe. I'm not going to ask somebody that doesn't, that's a cessationist that doesn't believe the Holy ghost is still working today to, Hey, just join me in prayer, pray for me and pray with me that this healing will come to my, my loved one. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. So there's a prayer of agreement. There's power in agreement. There's power in corporate prayer, in, in prayer of agreement. The Bible says one puts a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. There's power in unity and in agreement. Notice that when Peter was imprisoned, we talk about prayer of intercession. It wasn't just one person praying for Peter, but the church gathered in a home and began to pray in agreement. They were interceding, yes, two types of prayer at once. They were interceding for someone else and with the prayer of agreement with the prayer of agreement. It's powerful when people agree with you in prayer. The number, the number nine type of prayer in this list is the prayer of supplication. Now this is the one most people think of when they think of prayer, the prayer of supplication. What does that mean? To be supplied. I need God to do something for me. And there's nothing wrong with that type of prayer. God wants you to ask for his help. Go with me to Philippians chapter four and let's read this passage together, the prayer of supplication. I'm asking God to supply me with something, provide me with something. Philippians four, let's read, um, verses six and seven. Philippians four verses six and seven. And that's exactly right. Janine specific requests. Julie said that as well. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a command, by the way. You are commanded as a believer not to be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
let your requests be made known to God. Verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I taught this during our series on uh, total victory over discouragement, depression, and anxiety. Uh, Praise brings joy. Prayer brings peace. Praise brings joy. Prayer brings peace. Let me say that again. Praise brings joy. Prayer brings peace. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Why? Because you prayed and you thanked God. Notice this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. So the Bible says, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, Jesus said, I'll give it to you. Okay. So think. We were talking a minute ago, people put in the comments about unspoken prayer requests. Unbiblical. I was in Bible school, or not Bible school, high school, still in high school. And there was a teacher in our school who was a Christian and allowed his classroom to be used before first bell for morning prayer. And, and we would have uh, students gather there for morning prayer every single morning. And um, we'd pray. Well, there was these two sisters. I don't know what church they were from, but they came in their church clothes every morning. And uh, they, they would every day have all of these unspoken prayer requests for us to lift up. Hey, would you pray for me? And then they'd stand there and we'd go around the circle. People would list their prayer requests. And then these girls, um, yeah, I have seven, no, eight, nine, 10, 11. I have 12 unspoken requests today. And it would just irritate me. And back then I was just ornery and irritated. And I would just sit there and be irritated that I have 12 unspokens. And then the sister would speak up. Yeah, and I have nine unspoken prayer requests today. It's like, okay, you've probably heard people do that at your church. And one day I couldn't take it anymore because they would always ask me to lead the prayer for the, for the group. I couldn't take it anymore. And I just kind of said, which, you know, probably shouldn't have said, but I was like, why don't you just lump them all together into one big unspoken? You know, it's like, as long as you're not going to tell us anything, why don't we just lump it together? But, and then I, I, I spoke to them and I said, the Bible says to make your requests known unto God. Not unknown, make them known unto God. How can we pray for you if we don't know what to pray for? There's the question. How can we know what to pray for you if we don't know what to pray for? How would I even know which type of prayer to pray of these nine? Am I praying the prayer of faith? Is that what I'm doing? Am I praying the prayer of faith? Am I praying the prayer of consecration with you? I mean, I'm going through. Are we supposed to be praying the prayer of repentance? Did you sin? Have you fallen back into a life? I don't know. I don't know how to pray for you, right? And so it's important to make your requests known. Now, let me give you one more tip. This is a big tip. However specific you think your prayers are, make them more specific. However specific you think your prayers are, get even more specific. Let me give you an example. People say, well, I'm very specific in my prayer. I'm asking God to give me a job. That's a specific request. I want God to give me a job. Okay, any job? Any, any job at all that pays anything at any place? Is that what you're believing for? Just Lord, whatever you got. Are you believing God? I mean, maybe you are believing for anything in this moment. But I mean, if you just had been working in the corporate world and you were a manager of a corporation, 
you know, and you were making, you know, $240,000 a year and they laid you off or you, you transitioned out and you're now believing for another job. Am I supposed to be believing with you to stock boxes at Walmart? Is that where your faith is? No, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you're doing at this level. But if that's not what you're believing for, then don't be vague and say, well, I'm just believing for God for a job, whatever he's got. What kind of job? What kind of job? How much do you want to make? What kind of benefits do you want? Make your requests known unto the Lord. See, the problem is people have been taught, you can't pray like that. That's a very greedy way to pray. Just, be, just tell God, like, whatever you have for me, Lord. You know, No, he wants to know that you trust and believe him to do the things you're asking him to do. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly and above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. So I'm not embarrassed to tell God exactly what I'm believing for. I'm not embarrassed. He wants me to do that. He wants me to boldly approach the throne of grace and ask him for what he's able to do. It shows that I trust him to be able to do beyond what I can ask. So why would I ask small when I serve an infinite God? There's the question. Why would I ask for small things when I serve an unlimited, infinite God? I wouldn't. I absolutely would not. Father, I pray for every person that's watching and listening to me, every person that went through this uh, series of these nine types of prayer. First of all, I ask you to put a fiery burden and desire in their spirit to pray like they've never prayed in their life in Jesus' name, to seek your face, to pursue you with everything they have. And Lord, as we do, I thank you that you're opening doors for us, that you're uh, making ways where there were no ways, that you're providing for us, that you're healing, that you're delivering. I thank you that prayer requests will quickly be turned into praise reports. You're turning situations around. The battle's not our battle. The battle is the Lord's. And so we thank you that today you're filling us, filling us with a strong desire to pray and to seek your face and in times fast and go after your presence with everything we've got. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.